Well, in many ways, uh, stem cells actually don't require a great deal of, of introduction because whatever your background may be, you've almost certainly formulated at least some opinion about stem cell biology and its potential for treating human disease in the future. And arguably, it would be very difficult not to have formulated some kind of opinion of stem cell biology, given just the enormous amount of, uh, of coverage that it has actually received in the press over the last 10 years or so. This is just a, a smattering of some of the headlines that were around at the turn of the millennium, in fact. So just two years after the first derivation of human embryonic stem cells. And I think, if nothing else, it just illustrates that kind of uh, gold rush mentality, if you like, that was around at that time and hasn't really abated in the years since then. So what is it actually about stem cells which have uh, captured the imagination of both scientists and the general public? What is it about stem cells that really sets them apart from other cell types within the body? Well, by definition, stem cells are just a small trace number of cells present within just about every tissue of the body. This is actually the uh, subventricular zone of the uh, adult brain, and stained in red here are the neural progenitors, that early stem cell population. And in fact, stem cells are resident within these very well-defined niches, and they demonstrate two particular properties which you don't find in other cell types of the body. And those are their capacity, firstly, for self-renewal, and secondly, for asymmetric cell division. Now, what this actually simply means is that these stem cells are able to replenish themselves, to replace themselves within this niche itself for the lifetime of the individual. But at the same time, they are able to generate all of the terminally differentiated cell types which make up the tissue in which they reside. And that, of course, is absolutely crucial for the turnover of the tissue and for repair in the face of injury or, indeed, disease. <clears throat> Now, of course, these adult stem cell populations are, are very important for homeostasis of a tissue, but they are trace numbers of cells, in fact, and they are incredibly inaccessible, which makes them very difficult to use therapeutically. But if we were to transport ourselves back in ontogeny, back to the very earliest stages of human development, in fact, to the uh, five-day blastocyst, as you can see, see here, then the situation is really very different. Because at this stage of development, we have the outer trophectoderm, which gives rise to the placenta and all the extra embryonic tissues, and this inner population of cells here stained in red, which represents the inner cell mass. And it's that inner cell mass which ultimately gives rise to the developing embryo, the fetus, and the entire individual. And these cells are able to give rise to each and every one of those 210 cell types that make up the mammalian body. They are said to be pluripotent. And the birth of regenerative medicine about 10 years ago was actually in response to one very important development, and that was the ability to isolate those cells and to culture them in vitro long-term as these so-called embryonic stem cell lines. And here you can see one of those lines that have been propagated for many years. And in fact, these lines tend to capture that early moment of pluripotency and to make it accessible in vitro. That was the major breakthrough which gave rise to the birth of regenerative medicine. And the hopes of many in this field are pinned on the use of these embryonic stem cells for the treatment of disease. And that's not without good reason, because in fact we can uh, induce the differentiation of these cells, even in vitro, into populations of cells which can be used to actually impact on particular disease states. So in particular, the development of cardiomyocytes that you can see here, or indeed the development of dopaminergic neurons, which you can see here, which could potentially be used for the treatment of, uh, of Parkinson's disease. 
And critically, it's those types of diseases, ischemic heart disease and uh, Parkinson's disease, which are the very chronic and degenerative diseases which are the main uh, challenge, if you like, for human health in the 21st century, at least within the Western populations. And so we have at least some capacity to make an impact on human health. And there have, of course, been many breakthroughs in this field in the last few years, but particularly in these preclinical models, these animal models of human disease. What this has shown, of course, is that, uh, in fact, to translate this from these preclinical models into a clinical setting for routine use in humans is a very long and arduous journey that we have to follow. And in fact, it will only ever be achieved using a multidisciplinary approach. No one discipline is ever going to be able, in isolation, to achieve that goal. Because arguably, in order to try and cure disease using a stem cell population, we have, first of all, to expand and to maintain those stem cells under very strict conditions with rigorous quality control if they're to be used in humans. We need to be able to direct their differentiation in vitro along these required lineage pathways to form just the cell types that we require to treat disease and to exclude all other cell types, which could actually be deleterious. Furthermore, we need to take those cells and to fashion them in some way into some form of functional tissue using the principles of tissue engineering. That, that tissue then has to uh, integrate both anatomically but also physiologically into the very site of the lesion. And all of this has to have been done by, at the same time, trying to evade the host immune response directed at that allograft. And that is a, a very tall order. And at the very least, it would require the collaboration between molecular and cell biologists, tissue engineers, physiologists, surgeons, immunologists, just to name a few of those. But critically, there are laboratories right here in Oxford which are focused primarily in the stem cell field, but which also boast a lot of experience in each and every one of these different areas. And more critically than that, all of those laboratories have enthusiastically signed up to become part of the new Oxford Stem Cell Institute. And in fact, we now have uh, a total of 24 laboratories spread throughout uh, nine departments and three divisions of the university that are now involved in this institute, all of which are independently funded, incidentally, by the MRC or the Wellcome Trust, but who want to actually be involved in this because they agree with us that, in fact, it requires a multidisciplinary approach. Now, these uh, groups are uh, organized into different clusters dependent on the cell types that they study. So those that uh, look at embryonic stem cells, hematopoietic, neural, and adult populations of cells, and also various groups that are working on related technologies, such as uh, nuclear reprogramming and cloning technology. And importantly, they agree with us that we have to collaborate in order to bring this actually to the clinic. So how are we already uh, attempting to try and unite stem cell science in Oxford? Well, we've tried to do this in, in a number of practical ways, first of all. We've already set up a new course in the uh, Department of Continuing Education, which uh, labors under the title of Stem Cells, a Pathway Through the Maze. And uh, this, hopefully, will uh, attract a lot of interest and really raise the profile of Oxford as a center of excellence in the, uh, the stem cell field. And importantly, all of the PIs that I mentioned there will be contributing to that course. We've also already attracted a number of showcasing opportunities, particularly through the Oxfordshire Bioscience Network, to uh, showcase the technologies available here in Oxford in front of a uh, biotechnology uh, audience. We've set up a vibrant seminar series which attracts speakers from around the world and will enable different groups to network when they come to hear those speakers. 
And in the same vein, we are setting up an annual symposium as well. And in fact, uh, the first of those symposia next April, we will have the opportunity uh, to actually host the annual conference of the UK National Stem Cell Network. This will almost certainly be the largest uh, gathering of stem cell biologists that's ever been convened here in the UK. And we're currently expecting upwards of 500 delegates to come and descend on Oxford. So that's certainly a great opportunity for us uh, as a, the Oxford Stem Cell Network to become known globally for the work that we do. But of course, it's one thing to try and get uh, scientists together into a room, but the most important thing is to try and foster those collaborations. And it's actually for that reason that the majority of the money that we've been uh, given by the 21st century school is actually being used to, uh, to enhance small, um, small projects which are intercollaborative between these different groups. So back in July, we uh, convened a meeting of all the PIs and uh, set up a, a book of abstracts in which uh, everybody put forward their research agenda so that everybody would know what each other were actually doing. And we then invited uh, applications for seed funding for some of these collaborative projects, which simply had to meet these three critical criteria, those of scientific excellence, that they were collaborative between different groups, and also that they were capable of attracting more mainstream funding in the future. Well, that call for proposals actually ended this week, and we received nine full applications, which actually involved 17 of those 24 laboratories that I've already mentioned. So we've already begun to hit a niche there and to begin that collaboration. But of course, we can't move forward in the whole uh, field of regenerative medicine without taking society with us. And it's quite clear that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions in society about what stem cell biology can actually achieve and actually what the motivations are of stem cell scientists working in this field. You may remember back at the uh, beginning of the year, there was a big debate in, uh, in the House of Commons about the generation of these human-animal uh, hybrids. And in fact, it was clear at the time that there was a lot of misconception that in fact we would be using this technology to generate these uh, hopeful uh, monsters, if you like, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. But there are also some very legitimate concerns, of course particularly over the use of uh, human embryos, which are surplus to requirements in IVF clinics, and also the moral status of a, uh, a cloned individual, for instance, if uh, reproductive cloning were ever to be permitted. And it's really for that reason that we want to interact as an institute, not just with the Institutes for Aging and Science and Civilization, whose uh, agenda, I think, overlaps a little with our own, but also the uh, Program for Ethics in the Biosciences, because uh, we feel that it's only in that way in that multidisciplinary way that we can not only capture that brief moment of pluripotency, but actually use it for the benefit of humankind. Thank you. <laughs>